Welcome to another edition of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Wachiro. And on this episode, we're featuring The Geography of Flowers by Michelle K. Angwenyi. Something about the geography of that rain, or the lack thereof, as it came down in torrents, haunts me to this day. It's been a long while since I thought about that night in San Diego, which is what we call that strip of construction sand on the right side of the little pond behind the row of unfinished apartments. It was a day the scapula slid out so smoothly from between the ridges of cooked goat flesh, I nearly vomited. And when I think of that night, I think of when I first read a poem by Craig Arnold in high school. It was called Asunder. I kept the scrap of paper I wrote it down on. The pencil is fading, but something still breaks inside me every time I read it. And especially as I read it with you and without you. Music like the kind my father played in his shop every day after school was playing in the bus as I pressed by the soap factory in industrial area, where it always smells like flowers and fragrant chemicals, the same scent I always smelled laying my head on your chest or burying my face in your flowered shirts when you weren't home. Now, I cut meat. I cut meat and I roast it. I grill it. I package it. I hang it. This sounds like brutal, cruel work, but I do it with every delicate intention there is. You should see how gently my fingers move. Gentle as the sunflowers from behind my house, I always carry to work with me. Gentle as the people who get a free one with their meat. Gentle as the people who get a free one just because. I gave one to a group of beautiful children the other day and their laughter was like the rain, like a cleansing ritual like the rain that had not come in so long. Sometimes I want to believe that if my fingers move the right way cutting meat, they could bring forth the rain from the sky. Or moving the right way could be writing, which I try earnestly to do, but I understand it could also be writing without hope of an answer, like in the poem. It could be this, the hopelessness that permeates my days, or it could be that you suddenly weren't there. Many nights ago, I found myself making a pact with God. My greasy fingers clapped around the rosary you left behind. I was crying like you wouldn't believe. I told him I would let go and that he had to understand he did this to me, that I wanted to live, but that he was forcing me towards death. That night, hopeless, I went to San Diego and among the Chang'a drunks sat on the sand with a scapula in my trouser pocket digging into the flesh of my thigh. The first time I met you, it was in the dark shack where a group of us would meet Friday and Saturday evenings, not to do anything in particular, but smoke and laugh, sometimes eat, sometimes drink. When you walked in for the first time, I didn't see your face, but there was something about how you took up space in the corner that you occupied, the way you were not quite folded over, but not quite standing straight either. You asked through all our noise, very silently, if anyone had a box of matches for your cigarette. Everyone heard you, even as they pretended you did not exist. 
We do not know what to do and so there was silence. Then someone next to you passed you his matches after a good round of staring at one another. It had started raining outside, windy all the way down to the soul. There was Roomba playing like always and you walked out, shadows and all, leaving a trail of smoke behind you. I wondered how your cigarette would stay lit. In the shack, we continued to talk after you left, but your silence remained in that room between our words. Even when we couldn't hear each other through the noise of the rain, the space you left behind always carried your silence, which we were all fearfully aware of. When I remember San Diego, the night I was sitting in the sand with a scapula in my pocket, I really do not know what words or images to remember. San Diego that night was a mystery in that there was a man who was there that I don't really think was there. He came to me, jammed a gun between my shoulder blades. I said, Thank you, God, for remembering my prayers, for remembering my pleas for death. I don't know what he wanted to take from me, but at that moment, before the gun could be fired, I split into various pieces. I spread out over the sand. I was in the sky looking at myself. I was in front of the gun. I was buried under the sand. I saw he held a sunflower in his other hand, but before I could think anything about any of it, I watched him shoot the piece of me that he could touch, and that piece fell to the ground, my center. Then, from the sky, from the sand, from wherever else I was, I rushed back into myself, one body again, except for what had died. The man was running away, jumping over all the drunken men lying on the sands of San Diego, and I followed him, the scapula banging against my thigh. I took it out of my pocket and caught up with him and hit him in the back of the head with it. He scrambled and fell down, and then, scrambling to his feet, he looked at me with his big, scared eyes. I just wanted to give you a sunflower. And then he continued running into the darkness, leaving his sunflower behind on the ground. I picked up the scapula. That was a night I never thought of you again. Before all of this happened, you were a ghost. The same way the dead goat's flesh would be delivered every Tuesday and Friday without fail, and without fail I would wonder where the goat had gone. If there are goat ghosts, they must be asking themselves the same thing. Where are they, and if they're still goats? I have never stopped asking myself some of these questions. I ran out of salt one day, so I started walking in search of it, and I never went back to my shop for the rest of the week. I found some men who were sitting on a part of the road that was close to San Diego, fixing one of those constantly sparking electricity lines. I sat down next to them and asked them, what happens to the sparks when they disappear into the air? I didn't really listen to the answer because they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, which was that the sparks fell into the ground and turned into salt or stayed in the air and turned into ghosts. I walked back home still wondering why your ghost was roaming, what you and the good ghosts were saying about me. It rained that night like something had ended, like everything about the rain had to happen that night without apology, without question. The rain that came down that night must have dissolved all of the salt in the earth, extinguished all the cigarettes and washed out the smell of that industrial area soap from the sky. 
the next day, it was true that nothing was left on the earth. Nothing could be smelt or touched or felt. The water had started everything anew. San Diego did not exist anymore, and in its place was a thriving colony of little and big tadpoles that would probably not exist by the time the sun as we knew it had decided to come out. As for where the world went that night it rained so much, maybe you and the goat ghost can tell us. But it came down. It came back. Three days later on Tuesday when I got a call from the men who were delivering the meat, but could not find me to sign the delivery sheet. And so I went back, and I found salt right where it had always been, like it had never run out. The next time I met you, it was during the day, and you were sitting outside the shack like a radiance, and I was inside, like a termite afraid of the heat. Thank God I had cut a few of the sunflowers and put them in the cracked green vase next to the shack window, and hadn't given all of them to the children I'd met on the way to work. I watched you smoke. I noticed you had on a helmet that you had not taken off, so how did I know it was you? And how were you smoking with a helmet covering your mouth? And how did all of these events happen as they did, or did time just mix and make you as you were at that moment? You threw the cigarette butt on the ground at your feet. Instead of tobacco fumes, the wind brought in that detergent smell. Then, you left before I could register the sound of your motorcycle speeding off down the road. You came back the next day, and I was sitting outside this time. I passed you a cigarette from inside my coat pocket, and a sunflower from the vase, both of which you took, and you smiled at me, this time without your helmet. And you passed the cigarette back, half-finished, climbed on your blue motorcycle and sped away. One day, we talked. A few days later, you were in my room. A few days later, I was in yours. We always smoked. We always shared things as personal as our handwritings with each other. I always brought you sunflowers. You discovered Asunder, the only poem I could ever read, the only one that made me feel something. And you saw everything I'd ever tried to write that I hoped might make me feel something again. And I discovered your shelves filled with volumes and volumes of your collections of photographs. From your parents, from your childhood, from newspapers, magazines, even printouts from the internet. Looking at them was like looking at you from the inside out. There were plenty of photos of motorcycles. Photos of beautiful people on motorcycles. Photos of grand buildings, photos of people doing things, everyday things, and photos of people doing extraordinary things, like posing up in trees or hugging them, with garlands of bright sunflowers around their neck, which you said you had made from the ones your neighbor Zafani Ombati would give you as a child. Here, I remembered Zafani Ombati with you. I put him into my childhood so I could remember him too. You showed me a photo of your mother. I told you I could not remember having one. I could not remember my childhood as much as I tried. It felt as if I had always been living here and living here and living here, going to school and coming back home to meet my father outside his music shop and then living here some more. And of course, as all the children and all the children who grew up could never forget, I told you I remembered Zefani Ombati and his sunflowers. 
You told me you missed your mother and hoped to see her again one day. Where is she? She just left. Is that why you, I ride to see if I can see where she went? Can't have gone too far. I can help you look. You wouldn't know where to look, but I do. I'm figuring it out. It's taken me all my life and I'm close to finding out where she is. At that moment, I should have known that you would be leaving too. And it didn't take much of a mind, really, to know that you would go and never come back. After you left, I wanted to kill. So I took pleasure in carving every piece of flesh from the dead goats as they came into my hands, telling myself that this was death I could make sense out of. Unlike the song, science, and language of my high school days and almost everything that followed after, this was the clarity, the clarity that came with purposeful death. I really do this for a reason, obscure as it may be, and I continue to have a reason to do this, I told myself. Thoughts of Zefani Mbati came to me in the days before I went back to your room for the only time after your disappearance. He would plant fields of sunflowers, the only flowers for a great distance, behind our little house, and give them away every day in the streets. I never saw him tending to them there, though, but they could only have been planted by Zefani Mbati. For that name to keep ringing in my head like it was still around, still somewhere, was to say that Zefani hadn't run away, or that there was another one nearby. The thoughts that followed were inevitably of the street boys who would blow kisses through the windows of the bus as it rolled outside town from the bus station on my way home after school. I smiled as their smiley faces in my memory. Zafani would come out of nowhere and give them one giant sunflower, the biggest he had. This would make them so happy, and I remember this happiness like the street boys, like a sunflower, like Zafani. Eventually, all your poetry became only the first sim symptom of a greater unrest within. After that, I began to witness you in various stages of mental anguish, beginning with the blank stares, then the endless tears, the long walks to nowhere, the silence, then the screaming. You would scream endlessly into the night, into the days, through the days, and there was nothing we could do to stop it. Finally, one day, it all stopped, and on that day, the silence itself was a scream. We never saw you or your motorcycle again. My father's music continued to play. I learned how to cut meat, salt it, riding the bus through industrial area, smelling the floral soap of your shared atmosphere, smoking without you. One day, almost three months into being without you, in the depths of my despair, I went to my father's shop. I looked through the window before going in and saw a gentle yellow swaying of a dress that could only have been your mother, dancing to the music. I had found her, meaning I had found you too, and the way we ruined things by bringing them to our attention or bringing ourselves to their attention, I rushed into the room following your mother's swaying skirt, swish, and the smell of industrial air detergent. Could it be you? The music was something vague and warm and cold at the same time, oddly suitable for the moment. 
The language was definitely saying something about a return. I knew this, even if I did not understand the words. A return impossible to return from. Looking back, I know now that they weren't singing about your return to me, but your return to your mother. So I flew into the room, your mother sweeping around and around me, a sunflower in her hair. I spun around too, hoping to see her face, hoping to see yours in there as well. The sound of the music reduced to a soft beating, almost like that of the heart of a bird held in the palms. A few days before this moment, I had already been aware of the creeping sense that comes before you discover something, or find the answers to big questions, or have big questions discover you. Your mother turned her radiant head down. My father was crouching at the back of the room, behind a stack of records and cassettes. He raised his head to meet your mother's face and smiled. Then he looked at me standing near the door as he said your name, a big smile on his face. After all this time in searching, you were right there in the room, somewhere underneath our gazes, somewhere behind our eyes and now moving in the room. If I closed my eyes and imagined quite hard, you would have been as good as standing in front of me, inside me. Your mother and my father walked over to each other in the trance of the evening light to hold each other in a long embrace. We had been held together in the strange dance, having come together in the history of time, but staying apart even then, yet always, somehow, in the yellowness, in the music, in the floral abundance of our togetherness, in a place we could find, elusive, transcendental, yet grounded in the earth of killing and eating goats, and grey floods and millions of tadpoles and of desperate prayers to God, who in his wisdom is both present and not, just as you have learned to be. Your father and my mother, they whispered to each other, almost like I wasn't in the room, and they whispered to me at the same time. And I know what they said to me as I said it to each other, but I can't remember. The room went dark and I stood outside in the music that continued to play gently from inside. I refused to go back to your room for three months after you left. After seeing your mother dance, when I could finally go see what you had left behind, I was immediately drawn to the beads hanging out from underneath your pillow. I lifted it and saw your rosary nestled among the heads of more than a dozen sunflowers that were growing towards the light that came in from your window. They'd been alive all this time, growing from a soil I couldn't see, their roots going deep down into a place I would never know. Zephani had been there, telling me to pray, signaling me towards God. He'd given you a sunflower before you left. He'd been giving you many sunflowers, and there they were, but you weren't there, of course. Yet I could still smell the floral detergent. I looked around your room, saw your shelves, their piles and piles of photographs sinking them slowly into the floor. There's a certain holiness to leaving things untouched, to leaving them where they are and letting God deal with them as he deals with things in our absence or even in our presence when we refuse to see. And eventually I began to see you there, in the pages, in the photographs, walking through them, in them, climbing the trees, smelling the flowers, riding the bike, dancing with your mother, searching for cigarettes. And then you looked directly at me with those sharp black eyes. 
and I couldn't tell if they were seeing or unseeing, but they shone like they'd seen God. And you stretch your hand out into the air behind us and between us. And in a flash, a scapula hit me in the back of the head as I fell into a pile of sand near San Diego that was also salt, dissolving, that I had desperately been searching for, and electricity too, and most of it all was sunflowers. And you'd been gone for so long, more than three months. So I started running away, running away, running away from the thought of you, and then, like there was no time in which this had happened, I was walking towards myself, picking up the scapula and going home through a flat that was filled with tadpoles. I was the only one who hadn't seen that it had been raining since you left. And you, my center, being gone, I continued walking on. The Geography of Flowers was read to you by Wanji Kumungai and written by Michelle K. Angwenyi. Her current literary engagements lie at the intersection of her background in biology and her explorations of time and memory. She was shortlisted for the 2018 Brunel Africa International Poetry Prize and for the 2017 Short Story Day Africa Prize. Michelle has a chapbook, Grey Latitudes, which is out now from the African Poetry Book Fund and Akashic Books. Nipe Story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. Please write a review, rate, and share the podcast with your people. You can follow us here on SoundCloud, on Facebook, we are Nipe Story, and on Twitter, our handle is Nipe underscore story. Be well and be safe. Nipe Story is a finger piano production.